We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. The most prominent of those Ashkenazi rabbis, as I mentioned before, was a uh, rabbi named Rashi. Few other really prominent ones, but he's easily the most important and, and widely known and used uh, to this day. So, if you look in your, you guys have, have your books with you. Look at page uh, one seventy six. Because this is uh, Rashi's on in the left-hand margin, the left-hand column rather, uh, is uh, Rashi's first commentary, first first comment on the Torah, so on the, the first verse of Genesis. So we want to read it. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. Thanks. A couple of things I want you to note there. All right, the first is um, uh, in this one, helpfully, Rashi actually gives you his question. He doesn't always give you his question, so there's even a whole book uh, called "What's Bothering Rashi." Right? So usually, usually, you know, the verse you'll you'll get a verse in Rashi, you know, underneath it, printed in our in our you know edition of Bible that has Rashi. Uh, it'll just give his comment. He never really wrote his questions. Um, so you have to kind of think back, okay, like, like what, what is it that was troubling Rashi about this verse to help you understand like, why he's commenting the way he's commenting. Um, but generally speaking, Rashi's commentary uh, tries to, um, uh, try, what it's, it's, uh, 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 usually it's known as, uh, as a pshat commentary, which means it's like trying to give the simplest possible explanation for the biblical verse. Um, sometimes the simplest possible explanation uh, also means like what will bring it into as much harmony with the rest of rabbinic tradition as I can possibly, uh, as, as, or, or internally in harmony with the Torah, right? If there's a place that seems in contradiction with another verse or whatever, right? Um, Rashi will try to like kind of smooth things over. This is also what he does in his commentary to the Talmud too. He tries to make everything kind of like flow naturally and be kind of easy to follow, like for progress from one thing to the next. So what's Rashi's question here? In the beginning, God created heaven and the earth. Yeah. Why is that his question? Like what would make him ask that question? Where would you have thought the Torah should start? Where would he have thought the Torah should start? Well, it, it, from what I'm reading from the rest of what he's, he's saying, it's sort of like he's trying to... It, it almost appears as, as if it's a rebuttal to like, why we should be in the land of Israel and why why did God... Well, if you were meant to be there, why didn't you start there? It seems like he's wrestling with um, a larger argument around Okay, good, right? So there's, there's definitely a defensiveness in, in what he's saying here, um, which 
you know, I'm just sort of, you know, you could probably write a dissertation on this, but I'm just like, for the sake of our time together, I'm going to propose that, um, that that's a good reflection of the kind of world in which Rashi lived, right? in which you, you know, in which, in, in which you feel like you have to make that kind of defensive sort of argument about what the, what the Torah says. You have to make an argument about like, you know, Jewish uh, chosenness in a, in a world in that, that says, you know, actually God has uh, uh, superseded the Jews with Christianity, right? Uh, to say, you know, to say, no, you know, like, um, like, you know, our tradition believes that like God, Chose us for this and gave us this, and God, you know, uh, God cares about us. Um, but I guess the, the going back before that, like, um, is there another story or like idea or teaching in the Torah that Rashi thinks the Torah, where it would have been a more natural place for the Torah to begin than the creation of the world? Well, it begs the question, what's the purpose of the Torah? Ah, okay. A guy I'm going to come back to that. Okay. Right? A guideline of how to live, right? So if the Torah is a guideline of how to live, what do you think that, like, you know, it would have been natural for the Torah to start with what? Yeah, like rules or something, right? right? Uh, so that's, that's uh, and I actually think that this might be a little bit of a, uh, he, he might have condensed this, uh, the editor of this book might have condensed this without ellipses. I have to go back and look at the actual text. But because um, I think what Rashi uh, says is that you would have thought that the Torah should start with the first mitzvah, which is in Exodus, this shall be to you the beginning of months. Um, why doesn't the Torah start there with the first commandment in the Torah? In, you know, the Torah is a rule book, a law book. Why doesn't it start with laws? And, and so, and so his answer is actually, you know, a much more, um, uh, a, a, a much, um, um, a much more profound answer, right? Which is that, that you're misunderstanding the purpose of Torah, right? The purpose of Torah isn't, I mean, maybe one of the purposes of Torah to teach you laws, but the overarching purpose of Torah is about God's sovereignty, Right? Uh, and you, you know none of the premises of Torah make sense unless you first accept God's sovereignty, and so the Torah starts here with a, with a with with a question of God's sovereignty. Um, uh, you know, but he's not making that he's making that argument uh, for his own community, right? Um, uh, for for accepting um, uh, for accepting the authority of uh, of the laws of the Torah. Um, uh, he's he's. You know, he, what he's not saying there is that also, you know, God wanted everybody else to be Jewish too and to follow the laws of the Torah, right? He's not saying that. Um, he's saying God wanted the Jews to have the land of Israel and to, and to, and, you know, to follow these laws, right? Um, uh, so I, I show this to you first because it's, I think, worth, uh, worthy to, uh, to, to look at a little bit of, uh, of, of Rashi's commentary. You know, uh, and uh, um, and it's a great way of um, of studying the weekly Torah portion on your own. Still, is to uh, you can readily find um, uh, translations of of, uh, of of the Bible with Rashi's commentary or Torah with Rashi's commentary. Um, and uh, um, you know, every every once in a while, he'll say something that like will really baffle you. But uh, but but uh, but by and large, he actually uh, helps make the Torah um, uh, uh, understandable. Um, with, with the caveat that you know, like he's even though he was a, a brilliant scholar, he's you know it's still one guy's opinion about what the Torah means. It's, you know, it's 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 his commentary. Uh, and it's not, you know, sometimes when you read a, com uh, when you get, a, you know, especially if it's published in the Orthodox world, because um, the Orthodoxy tends to accept kind of um, on, uh, 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 on principle the 
the Torah according to how Rashi read it. Um, and so there's a sense of kind of like authoritativeness of Rashi's interpretation when you get those uh, um, editions. Um, so what I would say is use them and read Rashi's commentary with, uh, with, with you know, the weekly Torah portion or whatever it is that you want to study in the Bible. Um, but don't look at Rashi unquestioningly, you know, um, uh, uh, say, you know, how else, how else could this passage have been? In? First, try to understand what Rashi was saying. It's not always self-evident. Um, and then, and then say, well, you know, what, what else could this passage mean? You know, and, and there are millions of other commentaries out there too, some of which, uh, as we'll get to in a few minutes, um, are, are, you know, directly confront and argue against Rashi. Um, okay. Who's a modern day Rashi? A modern day Rashi. Um, I would say... Rabbi Sharon Browse, uh, I'll tell her you said that. Um, I doubt she would say that. Uh, no, because, I mean, listen, I mean, who's a modern day Rashi in the sense of like who is, you know, who are the most like brilliant teachers of Torah we have out there? Uh, that's a hard one to answer. Who's a modern day Rashi in the sense of like who's doing similar kinds of work that Rashi did? I would say the, the best person I can think of um, is um, Rabbi Adin Steinsaltz. Um, who, uh, if you don't know that name, you should know that name. Um, he is, um, he's got to be in his seventies, um, or, or older. Steinsaltz is S T E I N S A L T Z. Uh, A D I N is his first name. He's, uh, he's an, uh, an Israeli, uh, Hasidic, I think he's uh, I think he's affiliated with uh, with with Chabad actually, um, but he's an Israeli Hasidic rabbi who um, has um, uh, uh, you know created uh, the first the first widely used new edition of the Talmud um, since the printing of the Vilna edition of the Talmud in the, you know, in the, in, in the 18th century. Um, and what he did was the Vilna edition, um, you know, prints the Talmud uh, without punctuation or vowels, which makes it, you know, hard for anybody except for people who are already insiders to be able to learn it. Um, and even with Rashi's commentary, it's, it's, it's hard to study. And so what Steinsaltz did was created a sort of like running, um, a, a, a running commentary, um, uh, explanation of like what's going on in a passage that, that incorporates the, the, the words from the text. So, you know, so the, the Talmud kind of uses like pithy language, um, to, articulate very complex and lengthy uh, topics. So he kind of like fills in the gaps a little bit uh, by doing that. It's really amazing. And I would say the second, I'm not probably supposed to say this as a conservative rabbi, but um, there isn't one person who's doing this, which is why, um, which is why it's not like a person, uh, but um, the publishing house art scroll, um, which, you know, has probably, you know, I, I, I was actually just going to guess, I don't know, maybe like two dozen rabbis in its employ or something like that, um, has done a similar thing, maybe even a bigger project, you could say, with, with the Talmud um, in translating it and creating commentary and that kind of like ongoing explanation, running explanation in English. They've also now done it in Hebrew. Um, I think they even did, they've done it in Russian too, maybe. Um, it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, and so just like with the, with the, um, with the um, intent of making uh, Talmud study accessible to a wider, much wider audience of people, um, which on some level was Rashi's project too, was to make Torah study, um, you know, because, you know, he was a pedagogue, right? So he's like, well, you know, not, even, not everybody's going to be as good a teacher as me, so I'm going to write my commentaries down, and that way everybody can just learn it, right? Um, so, like, a similar kind of project that's happening today, I'd say, are those. Uh, one final one I'll offer is, and um, if we get to it later, I was going to talk a little bit about this, is uh, Daniel Matt, um, who um, has 
done a similar kind of project with the Zohar, which is the central text of Jewish mysticism, um, translating it into English and writing um, an amazing and accessible commentary uh, for it. Um, those are probably... <coughs> trying to think if there's anybody else. That's you know, sort of like in the same vein as Rashi. You know, there's like lots of amazing rabbis I could I could name, but like I wanted to like I don't think Dan I don't think Danny Matt is a rabbi either. I think he's just a, a scholar. But that was my big overarching. Sorry, Danny Matt. I mean, just I'm recording this, so I just want to make sure in case he ever hears it. Yes. Not just a scholar. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was just thinking as we've been So that, well, there, so there's a there's a, a tradition. Yeah, it's your, uh, there's a tradition that there are 36 uh, totally righteous people uh, in any given age, uh, but are usually uh, uh, hidden. You know, so you don't know who they are. Um, it's uh, called the Lamed Vav Nikim. Lamed Vav means 36. Um, no, you're, there there are. I mean, so you know, um, uh, the next. Uh, rabbi, I was going to talk a little bit about. Uh, no, no, it's okay because it's it's relevant to it. His name is Maimonides, uh, sometimes called the Rambam, which is an acronym for Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon um, or Rabbi Moses Maimonides, uh, and uh, <laughs> he uh, was an incredible scholar with with uh, lasting and very important contributions to to the Jewish canon. Um, uh, and also had quite a healthy ego. So his tombstone, which you can still see in, in, um, in Tiberias in Israel today. Now, he probably didn't write this on his tombstone, but it's meant to kind of like reflect the esteem in which he and his uh, students held him. Uh, he held himself and his students held him. It says, from Moses to Moses, there was no one like Moses. Right, so um, right, meaning like that, you know, that that basically like the two greats in the Jewish is there from there was Moses that got the Torah at Mount Sinai, and there was Moses Maimonides, no one ever comparable in between, and none like him after. Um, and so there is that there is that sense that that occurs with it, that sort of impulse within the tradition that you know that that none of our teachers will be as good as the ones that we had before, you know that. Um, that you know, there's a principle called yiridata doros, which means there's just like we get like we get we get worse over time, you know. <laughs> we get like dumber over time. We get like less knowledgeable over time. Whatever. Um, we get further away from God over time. Uh, so that 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 impulse exists within the tradition. You know, I mean, it's it's the the most obvious example of it today is Chabad. You know that uh, that you know that believes um, uh, that never picked a successor. For their last leader is the um, the last Lubavitcher Rebbe Menachem Mendel Schneerson, uh, and you know and and believes that that he's you know essentially irreplaceable. Um, you know Chabad in some ways is still a cult of personality around him, even though he's no longer alive. Uh, and even some in Chabad believe that he is the Messiah and is going to uh, to to return one day. Um, so yes. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, thank you. Um, thanks for asking. So uh, Chabad is a branch of Hasidic Judaism. Um, it's, Chabad itself is an acronym uh, meaning Chochma Bina Da'at. Hasidic Judaism, actually we're going to talk about that uh, in, a, in a little bit, um, is a more uh, spiritually and mystically and emotionally oriented uh, approach to traditional Judaism. Um, uh, today they might call themselves, you know, uh, a more emotionally and spiritually inclined version of Orthodox Judaism. But when Hasidic Judaism was invented, there was no such thing as Orthodox Judaism. Um, uh, and uh, and there are different kind of subcategories of Hasidic 
Judaism, um, usually based on, you know, uh, um, who the original charismatic uh, leader was in a particular place. Um, and so um, uh, uh, Chabad, what became Chabad, um, started in a, a town in Russia called Lubavitch. Um, and um, the, uh, the, 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 the founding rabbi uh, was known as the Lubavitcher Rebbe um, because he was the rabbi of Lubavitch, um, just like, you know, the rabbi of Bells was the Belzer Rebbe and the rabbi of, uh, of uh, Slonim was the Slonimer Rebbe, right? So that's how they sort of identify themselves. And usually what happened in those in Hasidic communities is they were kind of dynastic. Right, so um, so one, you know, a rabbi would lead and would appoint a successor, usually a, a either a close disciple or sometimes even a, a child, sometimes both. Um, that would be their successor, uh, and that was true of of Chabad um, as long as I'm. So Hasidic Judaism tends to be more spiritually and like emotionally oriented. Chabad. Uh, the acronym means Chochma Binadat, which means knowledge, wisdom, and, and discernment. And so their their approach was to kind of like ground the mystical and spiritual approach of Hasidic Judaism in a more kind of like rational thought. Um, that's just like their, you know, their, their uh, um, distinguishing ideology. Um and uh, and uh, and uh, for most of its history, Chabad was like most other Hasidic communities, kind of relatively small, insular sects, um, until the 20th century in America, when the man who would become now, now is the the last Lubavitcher Rebbe, uh, who died in the early 90s, I think, um, uh, whose name was Menachem Mendel Schneerson. Uh, said that we should um, we should you know spread uh, uh, Judaism um, and you know and, and and serve Jews all over the world uh, and so he he created a program uh, called uh, uh, Shlichut which is that they would send Shlichut means messengers so they'd send uh, uh, Lubavitcher rabbis Lubavitcher rabbis Chabad rabbis to communities all over the world. Um, uh, and which has made Chabad, you know, one of the, um, not necessarily the largest in terms of numbers, because people who might self-identify as Chabad, you know, are, are, are not, is not a huge number. But one of the most successful in terms of like reach and market share among the Jewish world um, uh, in the modern period. Um, and so I, I, I use the term Chabad kind of loosely because I, um, I figure that a lot of at least the Jewish people in the room have had uh, interactions with Chabad. We have um, a, a few Chabad rabbis here in Richmond. Um, um, but um, yeah, did that. Yeah, yeah. So, so, uh, so Hasidic is a larger category. Right, so uh, there are different kinds of Hasidic Jews, different subcategories of Hasidic Jews. Chabad is one subcategory, and the uh, the you know world headquarters now of Chabad uh, is you know it's no longer in Lubavitch in Russia, right? It's in Crown Heights in Brooklyn. Um, so yes, so they, they are among the Hasidic Jews who live in Brooklyn, but there are other uh, um, there are other communities of Hasidic Jews besides Chabad who live in Brooklyn and. You know, in places like that. Make sense? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, oh. Yeah. So, they, you know, so, so again, I mean, that's the most prominent example of that impulse that exists today in, in, in the Jewish world of, you know, like, there's, there's no one as good as our teachers. But it's, you know, it's just not true. I mean, like, you know, for, through all of Jewish history, you know, in, you know, in, in, in every era, there have been, you know, lots of, like, incredible uh, um, scholars and sages and, and, you know, righteous people and, and mystics and charismatic leaders that, that have emerged that have been, 
you know, it's, a, it's, like, it's like the Oscars, or it's like, like, who's the best actor this year? Well, I mean, there's not really an objective criteria to measure that by, right? Um, this is like which performance I happen to enjoy more than, than, than any of the others, you know, or at least on that particular day, right? So, like, who was a better scholar, Maimonides or Rashi? I don't know. I mean, you know, right? who was, who was, who was, you know, um, I can make an argument like who is a more important Jewish figure, Maimonides or the last Lubavitcher Rebbe? I'd probably say Maimonides, right? Um, but, you know, if I had the, um, if I, you know, was able to like be, you know, 400 years in the future or how long we've been since, since Maimonides lived, 800 years in the future, right? So I actually have no idea whether 800 years from now I would still have that same answer about which of those people are more important. It, you know, it could very well be the law of Cherebi. Um So yeah, I mean, there, you know, today there are like, I, you know, I could, I could list rabbis that I, you know, admire and, you know, think are brilliant that are alive today or that were alive, you know, in the past half century. You know, like we could do that for the whole rest of the night if I wanted to. Uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's a, right. None of this is to say that like the, you know, the tradition is an ongoing tradition. Um, I would say that I would say that most Jews don't mean by it ancestor worship. Um, there is a tradition within Judaism that your ancestors and right, especially like the more righteous, the better, right? Can intercede on your behalf uh, to God. You know, in some ways, it's like it's very much like the saints in Catholicism. Um, uh, do you, have any of you read um, uh, the the new book called *Sapiens*? So he talks about this. He talks about uh, how. Um, how like monotheism basically in some ways kind of like swallowed poly polytheism, but didn't, but just sort of like gave monotheistic terminology to things that are inherently polytheistic, right? So like, you know, instead of talking about like multiple gods with like, a, you know, a, a like a more powerful and like slightly less powerful gods, like now we just say that there's one God, but there's also saints that can intercede on your behalf or angels, right? Or or you know righteous people in heaven that can intercede on your behalf, and it's like it's basically a way of of, of like having the benefits of polytheism with the with the desire to believe in one God. Um, so and you know it's sort of disturbing to think about that. I think on some level for Jews, which we like to pride ourselves on being a, a, a pretty strictly monotheistic tradition, um, but the truth of the matter is. We're not all that strict of a monotheistic tradition, you know. Um, this will become if we if we get to talk about it tonight. I want to talk about Jewish mysticism, um, which it, you know is um, uh, uh, seems very polytheistic in some ways. I you know I I I, I admire much about uh, Jewish mysticism, um, but it's you know it's hard to look at it and say like okay now we we only believe in one God. Um, and so, yeah, so there's an element of that in, uh, in, in you know, praying at the graves of, uh, of, of the righteous, you know. So another way of thinking about it, which is, again, like, I think, you know, very similar to how I know a lot of Catholics think of relics and, and, uh, and, and, and saints is, you know, not so much that you're, like, you know, praying to them and you're not necessarily praying for them to, like, you know, uh, uh, intercede on your behalf to God, but you are, um, uh, but you are kind of, like, uh, being in, you know, being in their spiritual presence so that, you know, like uh, uh, they can help you provide like insight for your life, you know, in the manner that they might have thought, you know, like it gives you like, um, uh, uh, it's, you know, it's like not, you're not, you don't, you don't think that you're really communing with them, um, but it kind of like, 
uh, gets you in their mindset and like, you know, kind of helps you like sort things out through, you know, like acquiring some of the wisdom that they might have had or something <laughs> like that. I don't know. Um, yeah. I, you know, I, I personally for me, like I go and, you know, visit uh, some, you know, uh, important rabbinic graves in Israel, but like primarily as um, um, as a tourist and not as a pilgrim. But but a lot of people go as pilgrim. Listen, we have it in uh, in our daily worship, right? You know, why is it that we start every Amida, right? And I know you guys, we you, you had a class with Kendall Rosenblatt on Jewish prayer. So the Amida is the 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 you know most most important Jewish daily prayer. Uh, begins with uh, uh, "Blessed are you, uh, um, Adonai, our God, um, uh, and the God of our ancestors, right? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and God of Jacob. Well, why are we invoking them? Why don't we just say like, "Blessed are you, God," right? You're you're totally awesome, and, and I'm going to pray to you now, right? Right? We pray, we invoke our ancestors because we believe that God uh, that they'll, that 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 God will um, uh, will uh, uh, will ascribe some of their merit to us, right? Um, which is not all that different of a thing from from saying, you know, if we sort of hitch our wagon to Maimonides, you know, then, then God will think of us a little bit more favorably. Um, okay, all right. Um, one other thing just to know about uh, about uh, uh, Ashkenazi Jews in that in that history is that um, they were often expelled from places where they lived, um, which is why uh, a very large majority of Ashkenazi Jews end up living in places like Poland and Russia. Um, eventually, things don't go so well for them there either, um, but it becomes you know the the um, the the the, uh, the best European refuge for many Jews at the time. Okay. Um, Sephardic. And actually I'm going to... So, Sephardi, what does that mean? Spanish. Spanish, good. Sephardad is the um, Hebrew word for Spain. Um, and a, a, a related... Ethnic tradition is Mizrahi, which means uh, Eastern, which means like Middle Eastern, right? So usually those are kind of lumped together in, in one, uh, uh, although sometimes they have distinct practices. But uh, in, uh, you know, Sephardi Mizrahi um, is, uh, is essentially the Byzantine Empire uh, uh, and, and ultimately the Muslim world. Um, okay, so... Um, Remember, we started in the year 600. Um, uh, in um, um, in 622, Muhammad uh, uh, receives his uh, receives, uh, according to legend, receives uh, prophecy. Uh, um, uh, from uh, the angel Gabriel, uh, and uh, he uh, uh, brings uh, his uh, teachings back to his own community, uh, be, uh, his own uh, uh, tribe, and uh, and uh, um, uh, uh, begins what becomes Islam. Uh, Muhammad, interestingly. Um, uh, uh, first goes to the Jewish community of Mecca with this revelation um, and who he had a lot of contact with and, and who he respected his fellow monotheists um, but they uh, rejected him and uh, ultimately uh, he uh, and his followers are, uh, are expelled from Mecca uh, and they flee to uh, uh, to uh, Medina, another city in the Arabian Peninsula, uh, and there essentially establishes uh, more formally uh, uh, Islam as its own religion. Uh, one of the like amazing stories of uh, of, of human history is that uh, somehow uh, uh, Muhammad 
and uh, and uh, and his followers are able to uh, um, essentially uh, ex- uh, capture um, uh, much of what was the Byzantine Empire uh, and establish a caliphate uh, by 638 uh, of the Common Era, um, uh, including the land of Israel. Um, uh, but so um, so uh, by 638. The vast majority of Jews who are living in in Spain, North Africa, Middle East, um, are living under uh, begin to live under Muslim rule and not Christian rule, uh, and uh, the Jews who lived under Muslim rule generally fared a lot better than Jews who lived under Christian rule. Uh, the uh, Muslim societies that wasn't universally true; it wasn't true all the time. There were times in which uh, Jews were. Uh, uh, killed and, and massacred in, in Muslim uh, uh, under Muslim rule too, uh, but by and large, uh, Muslims respected Jews and Christians as as uh, um, as what they called people of the book. Um, I know that people you've probably heard that term before. Most people don't know that it's originally an Arabic term, Muslim term, um, Allah Kitab, Kitab, excuse me. Um, so. Communities, uh, they were protected communities. Sometimes they were, they were, they were usually considered to be inferior status. They were, you know, legally second class. They were taxed more. Um, they had some limitations and restrictions on the kinds of jobs they could hold and things like that. But generally speaking, they were integrated and accepted as part of, uh, of as part of the wider society. Um, and so that means that Jews were generally secure from violence in in Muslim uh, in the Muslim world. Uh, and uh, were were uh, an integrated part of uh, of society, which in the Muslim world was way more uh, uh, cosmopolitan than the than medieval Christian world. Uh, way more cultured, way more educated. Um, uh, there was there there you know there was uh, um, you know the widespread uh, study of, of of science and math. Um, uh, in in the Muslim world, uh, there were periodic golden ages uh, during this period. Most notably, what you know for Jews at least, we call 1912, 1912, 912 to 1090 the golden age of Spanish Jewry. Um, so about 200 years, uh, uh, Muslim controlled Spain, um, uh, where uh, it was you know a really good time uh, uh, for. For uh, Muslim Spain in general, a lot of uh, 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 political and, and economic and, and cultural power, uh, and uh, and uh, it was a high degree of toleration for Jews during that period too. So Jews rose to very high and prominent positions uh, in in society. Um, one of the two of the great uh, poets of, uh, of of Jewish history, um, certainly of the medieval period, uh, Shlomo Ibn Gvirel. Um, and uh, Yehuda Halevi uh, um, uh, uh, wrote during that period. Uh, I have actually a book by Yehuda Halevi here, Judah Halevi. That, uh, so this isn't actually a book of poetry by Judah Halevi, um, but he was a poet and a liturgist also. This is a book of philosophy by Judah Halevi, but a really interesting book of philosophy. It's written kind of as a, uh, as a dialogue um, between... Um, a king and uh, different uh, representatives of different uh, religious and philosophical traditions, um, all of them, uh, you know, uh, arguing why their tradition is the most reasonable one. Uh, and um, ultimately, the Jewish tradition wins. Um, it's, I guess, the benefit of being the Jewish person who's writing the book. But, um, <laughs> but anyway, it's, um, it's an interesting, it's an interesting uh, text. Um, remember, I said that for the Ashkenazi world, I mean, you get a sense of like what the what the community was like by the by the cultural output, right? So the cultural output of uh, of the uh, Jewish uh, uh, of, of the Jewish society under Muslim rule was, uh, I mean, there's obviously some overlap. I mean, Jews uh, wrote uh, biblical commentaries and legal commentaries and things like that too during that time. Um, so I mentioned before Maimonides. Maimonides uh, wrote uh, the the first major systematic law code um, uh, since the Talmud uh, in Judaism, called the Mishnah Torah. Um, uh, and 
emblematic of Maimonides, that healthy sense of self. Uh, Mishnah Torah means like the second Torah. Um, so, and, and he, he actually wrote this in the introduction to the Mishnah Torah. He's like, he's like, I've done this. So basically, you know, all a young student would need is to study the Torah and to study the Mishnah Torah. And you would all know all you need to know about Judaism. Um, so, you know, there you go. Um, so Jews were doing, you know, these sort of internal Jewish things too. Um, but we're also um, uh, integrating much more from the outside world in the way in which they went about doing it. So it's not, uh, it's not a coincidence that something unique like the Mishnah Torah would come out of the Muslim world where there is you know, systematic work being done to compile religious law in the Muslim world, right? And there is conversations happening between, you know, Jewish communities and Muslim communities. Like, oh, that's a really good idea. I think I might do that too, right? Um, whereas that is not happening between the, you know, the, the uh, Jews of, you know, Mainz and Schweier in, uh, in, in Germany and like the Christian and the bishop outside. Right? They're not like swapping notes about how to like best explicate religious law. But they were in the Muslim world, right? So uh, Muslims were writing law codes, and and my mom is like, oh, that's that's a really neat idea. I think I'll do that too. Um, so they so they are doing internal Jewish stuff, but they're doing it in a, in in a way that is influenced by and sometimes in communication with the outside world. Um, but they're also producing uh, uh, really altogether other kinds of material. So. Um, one is works of Jewish philosophy. This is this volume two. Might as well show you volume one. Um, this is in English anyway, so it's not original. But um, this is a book, another book by Maimonides. Uh, he was very prolific in his time, uh, but I would say his two most important works are the Mishnah Torah, uh, which is Code of Jewish Law, and this one, which in Hebrew is called the Moran Nevuchim, meaning the Guide of the Perplexed. The Guide of the Perplexed <coughs> is a book of Jewish philosophy, one of the first systematic philosophies of Judaism ever written, and still today one of the most influential. Um, and what's amazing about it is that it's an attempt, sort of like the Kuzari is um, that I'm passing around, um, is an attempt to explain why Judaism is in line with rational principles. Why is it that Maimonides would care about saying how rational Judaism was? Well, I think, one, because of all of these other sorts of codifying of laws that are starting to happen. And maybe, I mean, the next era, as you said, is going to be sort of the Enlightenment. So it seems like people were starting to get into that more, like moving away from religion and more right. thinking about science. Good. I would be careful about uh, how uh, much uh, people were anticipating uh, eras that were probably not going to come for another couple of hundred years. Um, and, uh, and the Enlightenment didn't quite happen in the same way in the Muslim world as it did in, in Western Europe. Um, but I think you're, you're right about one thing, that, that, that there is uh, within Maimonides society, which is the um, uh, 11th and 12th centuries in um, Spain and Morocco and Egypt, um, and then ultimately uh, the land of Israel, is that, um, is that in the wider culture, people are studying philosophy. Uh, the first time that, uh, that Plato and Aristotle are, are, uh, are studied and translated out of the original Greek, or really rediscovered in the first place, um, is in the Muslim world, in the Middle Ages. Um, they hadn't really been studied since uh, uh, since the fall of Rome, um, and uh, and so you know all of a sudden you know people in in Tunisia are talking about uh, are talking about Aristotle over tea, right? And having you know, having conversations about you know well, like what's reasonable and what's rational and whatever, right? People in Christian Europe aren't talking about that; they're talking about you know like. Um, you know, you know, what does the bishop say we should we should believe, right? But in the Muslim world, they're talking about you know uh, what does what does Plato think is um, the most reasonable way of living, 
right? And so all of a sudden, Jews who like you know need to like keep up with the Joneses have to make an argument, like you know, like like maybe you know how do I explain that my religion is just as rational as Islam or more rational than Islam, right? How do I keep up in this conversation? So they write philosophies like the Kuzari uh, or like the Guide of the Perplexed by Maimonides um, to say to say here are all the ways in which um, uh, Judaism is totally in line with reason. Right? Maimonides does like some pretty radical stuff there. He says that the um, uh, that uh, that the that the miracles in the Torah weren't supernatural, that they were built into the fabric of creation from the very beginning. Right? They weren't God, like you know, actually intervening in history. Right? Because that would be irrational. Right? They God when God planned the world, God planned that the sea would split at a particular time. Right? Um, so um, you know, that's. To, also to say that what, when Maimonides wrote this, it wasn't uncontroversial, right? It was, it was controversial. But, uh, but it's, a, it's a really good example of what, what was coming out of the, uh, of, of the Jewish world in, um, in Muslim medieval Spain and, and, uh, and, and Middle East um, in contrast to what was coming out of, um, of, uh, of the Ashkenazi world. These around. Here, I'll start the Mishnah Torah over here. Uh, if you want to look at it. Okay. Um, Maimonides, uh, uh, actually, well, I won't talk about Maimonides, but what I will say is um, I wanted to show you this. It's an edition of, uh, the, of the Chumash, of, the, of, 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 the, of a Bible that has um, a bunch of different commentaries laid out together. Um, uh, so these are actually, you know, commentators that are talking over centuries and major geographical distances. But this is, you know, has Rashi's commentary. It has Rashbam's commentary. Rashbam was Rashi's grandson, uh, but also has Ramban Nachmanides, uh, his commentary. And Nachmanides lived about three hundred years after Rashi uh, in Spain, um, in Barcelona, actually. Um, you can go to his synagogue still in Barcelona. Um, and uh, right, and so you know, Ramban is is sometimes like arguing with Rashi um, on the same page. So this obviously was is an edition that's compiled you know much later in time. Uh, but you can find editions like this. You can even find an edition like this in English, translated in English. Uh, it's called Mikro Gedolot, which means like the great scriptures. Um, uh, but the uh, a publishing house called the Jewish Publication Society um, put out. Um, uh, an English version. I think they've completed all the volumes of it uh, recently, of uh, of Mikro Kedolot. Um One other thing that I wanted to show you um, that's an important product of uh, uh, the Jewish uh, medieval world uh, in 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 the Sephardic Jewish medieval world is something called the Shulchan Aruch. Um, which is another a later law code. Maimonides wrote the Mishnah Torah in the like end of the eleventh, beginning of the twelfth century. Sorry, yeah. end of the twelfth, beginning of the thirteenth century. That's what I meant. Uh, like late eleven hundreds, beginning twelve hundreds. Um, in the sixteenth century, um, uh, is the next major law code that's printed that um, that builds on what Maimonides, we're going to say, well, you know, like what, you know, what changed in an ancient tradition uh, uh, between then and the answer is, you know, life changed, you know, that, that like, you know, there's new interpretations, there's, uh, you know, new questions that, that, that emerge, different things in life happen. So there's, so uh, uh, what a rabbi named Joseph Caro does is basically writes um, an updated version of Maimonides' uh, uh, code of Jewish law, and his law code becomes um, the uh, still today the most authoritative uh, code of Jewish law. Um, so, uh, even though there have been codes of Jewish law written after, uh, if you go and ask, you know, uh, 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 rabbis today, like what's you know, like What's the primary source 
for going and looking up Jewish law. Obviously, you might go to other places after that to kind of like confirm things or if things are unclear or whatever. But um, one of the first places that they would go is this, the Shulchan Aruch, which is um, a code of Jewish law written in the 16th century in the Muslim world. Art flourishes, poetry flourishes, music flourishes, philosophy flourishes, right? That's what Jewish life was like in, uh, under, under Muslim uh, uh, dominion. Um, so there is um, one other um, aspect of Jewish life that emerges in the medieval period, uh, largely in the Muslim world in the Sephardic world, the Mizrahi world, which is Jewish mysticism, Kabbalah. So, what is, what is Jewish mysticism? What is, well, let's look at the Jewish thing. What is mysticism? Good, okay. So there's something about mysticism that deals with, with hidden realities. Good. Any other thoughts? What's mysticism? So I'll give this to you as a uh, working definition, okay? Mysticism is a belief that God can be directly experienced through meditation and ritual practice. Right Now that's different. I'll say it again. A belief that God can be directly experienced through meditation and ritual practice. So how is that different than traditional Judaism? As, as we've been talking about it, as you understand it like why why is that why is that mysticism and not just judaism okay so it's more it's it's more experiential okay Okay, so it's more maybe, maybe more personal in that way. More individual, more. Mm -hmm. mm, yeah. Mm -hmm. Good. I think these are all good answers. Um, so I think that uh, you know, uh, traditional Judaism would say that you know meditation or, or prayer, you know. Uh, is another way to think about meditation. Um, uh, that prayer or meditation and, and ritual practice were are part of Judaism. I think part of the difference is is the objective, right? So I think that by and large, traditional Judaism would not say that the objective of observing, you know, like keeping kosher, say, or um, or observing the Sabbath is like the direct encounter with God, right? They, there are all sorts of different, you know, intentions. You know, it's because God commanded it, right, or because it, uh, it it connects you with other Jews, or because it, you know, we talked about kashrut, right, it makes you more aware of the world, whatever, right. Um, but this is about a a direct personal encounter with with the divine, and saying that the reason you keep kosher, you know, is is not really because God commanded you to do it, right. It's because um, it's because um, God, God commanded you to do it because God wants to be in an intimate relationship with you. And by doing it, you enter into an intimate relationship with God. Right? So that's, that's mysticism. Mysticism believes that there's a hidden reality. 
right? And because there's a hidden reality, that that hidden reality has to be accessed in one of two ways, either by taking yourself totally out of the world, right, through meditation or something else, right, um, or through encountering the world with with the intent of uncovering, you know, something that's 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 hidden within what you're experiencing, right? So so you're you're you know you're you're shaking your lulav on Sukkot, right? Not because it's a a palm branch, but because there's something like hidden within it, right? Spiritually accessible within it that's going to um, connect you to um, something that can't be otherwise seen. I don't know if I would go so far as to say it's a manipulation. Uh, that that feels to me a little bit too um, negative about it, you know. Well, if I miss something, I'm change, I'm creating change, and that's a manipulation. It doesn't have to have negative connotations. Yeah, so say it again. It's a manipulation. Yeah, manipulation of the of the worldly to assess the metaphysical. Yeah. Yeah, I, but sometimes it might be an escape from the worldly to access the metaphysical too. So that's that may be the only like um, quibble I would have with that. But yeah, um, uh, so um, it's not that mysticism didn't exist before this period. Um, there are um, there are you know, uh, 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 statement mystical kinds of statements and teachings passages uh in the bible um you know like some of the prophetic uh writings like ezekiel for example um uh, becomes kind of like the source texts for the mystics for the medieval mystics because like you know ezekiel's seeing things that like clearly are not you know like readily visible in reality, right? Um, so he must be having a mystical experience and how could we have that kind of experience too, right? Um, the answer might be drugs of some sort, but, um, uh, but that's, uh, but that, so, so there are texts that are, that are sort of mystically oriented within the classical Jewish tradition. In uh, medieval Europe, uh, there are uh, mystical movements and mystical communities um, there's a, in particular, there's a group called the Hasidei Ashkenaz, the pious people of Ashkenaz that were, that were kind of like, um, a, monast a monastic tradition, right? So they were, you know, sort of like escaping from the world in order to encounter the divine. Um, and they, they have texts and, and traditions. Uh, but the, by, by, by far the most influential mystical tradition is the one that emerged in the m medieval period in, um, in Spain, uh, Primarily because of the publication of this book called the Zohar. The Zohar means the the Book of Splendor um, or the Book of Light, um, and the Zohar is an interesting book. Um, it it was probably published by a rabbi named Moshe de Leon, um, but traditionally it's understood to have been written by um, the third century sage, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, um, who lived in ancient Judea during uh, the Roman period. Um, it's believed to be that because the book is, the book claims to have been written by Shimon Bar Yochai, um, but most people, uh, most scholars at least today, don't believe that it, that it, that it authentically was that it you know not a forgery but uh, was common at that time to write um, write pseudepigraphic write pseudepigraphically um, so you would you would you know claim you know uh, authenticity right um, uh, for what you're writing because it comes from a more ancient source or you say like uh, like this is what this person would have written you know um, or I'm writing in their spirit or something like that right it was just sort of commonplace to do that. Um, and one of the great innovations of the Zohar um, is, you can see it here, um, on uh, 179, um, is this model called the Sfirot. Um, one, of the, one of the things that the Zohar is trying to reconcile is um, the God of philosophy and the God of experience. 
right? So the God of philosophy is sort of like infinite, un unknowable, uh, eternal, right? But if God is all of those things, then how does God act in the world, right? How do I have a relationship with something that is eternal, infinite, and unknowable, right? But if the, but if the point of Jewish life is to have um, is to have spiritual encounters, to have relationship with God. And there's got to be more to God than, than just that, you know, God of philosophy. Um, and so they believe they couldn't quite figure out uh, how, um, uh, like how to bridge the gap between, you know, the infinite and the finite. Um, but they believed that there was an aspect of God that was more finite than, um, than what they would call ainsof, which is, which is, uh, means without end or infinite. Um, and it said that God is manifest in the world in these, in these 10 ways. Um, those ways interact with each other. Um, they're responsible for uh, aspects of creation. Um, uh, there are things that uh, those, those aspects of God want to be in relationship with each other and want to be in relationship with us. Um, it's our job to unite these things uh, to unite these attributes together, and uh, and uh, because um, because if God is one, uh, then then we can't really connect with God in in a world in which God's attributes seem to be disparate from one another. Um, it, it became commonplace for mystics to uh, preface any time that they would perform a ritual act, like I mentioned, waving the lulav and etrog. They would uh, say before they do it, l'shem yichud kuchabrichu unshrintei which means for the sake of uniting the Holy Blessed One and God's indwelling presence, right? Because the objective is to put God back together and to put ourselves together with God, right? And that you can experience, you can, uh, um, you can experience God in the world in, in all of these different ways. Um, so it might be easy to connect to God's attribute of love, and that's one way of connecting, but you're only connecting with a part of God if you're connecting with that. The, the objective is to connect with all of these things and to have them all interconnected together. And there are things that prevent us from doing that and prevent uh, those attributes of God from uh, being able to be in relationship with us, uh, and those uh, Kabbalists would call klipot, which mean like shells. Right? So there are like spiritual barriers that we have to uh, remove or break through in various ways to be able to access God uh, in, in the world. Um, the Zohar is written as a commentary on the, on the Torah. Uh, and so what it does, to Kristen's point before, it takes the Torah as a code almost for uh, how God manifests in the world uh, in, in all of these different kinds of ways. Um, Um, it's supposed, I mean, it, I'd have to draw for you, but it's supposed to be a, a, the shape of a human being. That's right. Yeah. 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 The Vitruvian man. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's exactly like that. Um, and you know, and, and, uh, um, uh, there's, it's very, there's, there's a, there's a sexual and sensual a aspect of this. Um, so the Kabbalists. Uh, uh, mystical tradition tradition is very physical in that way, right? Um, you know, believing. Uh, you know, I mean, it could. You know, some for some people within the mystical tradition, it's very much about um, uh, escaping the physical world. Some people within the mystical tradition, it's no. You know, like the the encounter with God is through the physical world, and so things like sexuality uh, become an uh, a, a, a way of. Uh, of encountering the divine. So you may have heard, you know, a, a, a tradition that it is, you know, a special, an extra mitzvah to um, have like intercourse with your partner on Shabbat, right? That's a mystical tradition, right? Um, you know, why on Shabbat would that be more important than any other time, right? Um, because you're mirroring uh, the, the, uh, the encounter, the sexual encounter between God and the Jewish people, um, and, or between God and the world with your partner, and there's something like, you know, you're, you're, you're accessing something deep by doing that, right? Um, you know, the mystical tradition uh, is, is really important on, in its own right, but it's also really important because it, because it, comes the, uh, because it becomes the, um, the, the, the root from which um, a lot of other traditions grow, most notably the Hasidic tradition, which uh, begins in 
uh, Eastern Europe in the um, uh, in the 18th century um, as a as a way of saying you know the the, Europe, the Ashkenazi tradition was very kind of academic um, by and large uh, very insular uh, uh, and uh, very top heavy by you know in, for for the scholars had had all the power and all the authority and all the peasants poor illiterate people felt like they um, couldn't really access the divine. Uh, and so come along teachers who are schooled both in the Talmudic tradition and in the mystical tradition and say to the wider population, you know, your leaders have betrayed you. You know, they've, they've told you that, uh, that, that, you know, that the average person can't access God. And I'm here to tell you that God wants to be able to, wants you to be able to, con wants everybody to be able to connect with God. Um, and that is essentially, I mean, on one foot, the story of the beginning of the Hasidic tradition, um, uh, which is a, uh, you know, populist kind of uh, approach to Judaism. Uh, it doesn't feel like that anymore in some ways, uh, but uh, that's a whole other story. Um, but it emerges as a way of saying to the wider population, like, you don't need to be a Talmudic scholar to be a good Jew. God loves you. Uh, even if you can't read a letter of Hebrew, uh, what God really wants is relationship, and what your soul really wants is relationship with God. And I can, you know, and 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 I, the rabbi, can teach you how to do that, which is why the Hasidic tradition becomes a very kind of personality, cult of personality-centered tradition too. A lot of the mystical tradition becomes a very cult of personality-centered because it relies on the you know unique insights of the of of the teacher as opposed to the more scholarly tradition that relies um, on, you know, sort of like, like wider, more democratic base of, of, of knowledge, right? Not one teacher that has access to like the totality of the tradition, you're relying on, on other sources. The mystical tradition is about you know, the, like, how close any given individual is to God and the insight that they would have to be more um, personality-driven tradition.